0: big story. So typically what we do here at Stone Oak Bible is we teach through books of the Bible. We just walk through them. We love this. Uh, But starting last week, this week, and then finishing with Easter, we're doing something a little bit different. And and what we're doing is we're trying to to zoom out and see the big picture that scripture teaches um, and to see how uh, God is the center of that story. (laughs) And we are not. So we walked through this. We started it last week examining this, and I'll put this up here. Don't worry. Well, actually, I won't because I don't think it works. There we go. One more. There we go. I'm not going to talk about this. This is our chart last week. Don't, don't, don't worry. I'm not going to talk about it. But what we, but what we started with is we, we divided the big story into three parts. Part number one, creation, that God created all things out of nothing, by his word, for his glory, and it was really good. That creation, um, we, we talked about, we saw in the first part how good God was and how good creation was. It was perfect perfection, shalom and justice. It was, it was incredible. And as we said in part one, that part one, it was very clear, God was the center of part one that it was centered on him. All that he created was good. He created it for his glory, and he created it to center on himself. And, And from that, creation shows us, again, he's the center, the story, this story right here. Although we have a part in it, this story right here, God is the center of this Of this story and creation also shows us that all glory of this story goes to Christ and Christ alone. We talked about that last week, Um, and what we see in our in our Bibles as the story unfolds is that Genesis two, eventually gives way to Genesis three, and in Genesis three something happens that changes everything. It's this nasty little three letter word called sin. And in this moment, in the garden, the man and the woman that God created for his glory make this decision. They decide that they know better, and they ignore what God told them, and they go their own way, thinking they knew better, which, the more you think about it, is absolutely insane. Uh, But isn't that how sin is? Sin doesn't make sense. Sin is insane by its definition. It's not logical. Sin is never in our best interest. And yet, um, here we are. And so the man and the woman who were created in the, in the image of God, they already had that. Um, they were already like God as his, as his image bearers, already walking with God in fellowship. The serpent comes to them in Genesis 3 and says, Hey, take this, because when you do, you'll be like God. What a crazy lie that was for image bearers to think that they need to take this in order to be like God when they are the image bearers and are like God. Makes no sense but here was the temptation it wasn't enough to bear his image it wasn't enough to be walking with him in the garden this was a temptation to be god to know what he knows and so they reject god's word they take that fruit knowing they know better and from that moment sin enters the world in genesis 3 sin does not i want to make two clarifications before we get to our text Sin doesn't just corrupt Adam and Eve individually. What we see in Scripture is that sin breaks it all. Uh, It corrupts all of creation. If you remember, God says, Adam curses the ground because of you. It now has thorns. Like, that stinks. Um, Cursed is the ground. It broke everything. It it, it corrupted everything. And also, hear me. When Adam Adam and Eve fell, it didn't just corrupt them, it created their entire offspring after them. Um, the, what we see in this and what we know from experience, every man and woman that was born after Genesis 3, that's all of us, no matter how old you are, um, are born into sin. You are born into a sin nature, meaning you have this propensity to sin. It's why no parent on the face of the planet has ever had to teach their kids how to be Selfish. That comes pre-installed in our little, beautiful, wonderful babies. It's because sin broke something. More than that, every woman and man since that moment in Genesis 3 has also gladly chosen to sin. I mean, it's just sin, sin, sin. Since that moment, sin fundamentally changed the story. Shalom was, was what, we, what we said was vandalized in Genesis Three, and we call this tragedy the fall. So here's what happened. If you just look at it, you have Genesis 2, everything is awesome. I just sang the Lego movie in my head, and I did not mean to. I'm, I'm going on a little sleep, so I might go crazy here. So Genesis 2, it was good. It was shalom. It was perfect. It was the garden. It was wonderful. Genesis 3, we have the fall where Adam and Eve chose sin and, and kicked out of the garden. Things broke. Genesis 4, Cain The son of Adam, cold-blooded, murders his brother. Do you see how fast this has broken? This has, sin wrecks Shalom. And that's the world we live in. The wars, the thorns, uh, the allergies, uh, the cancer, the slander, the struggle, the tornadoes, the violence, all of it. The origin of all of that is Genesis 3. And so we, with all creation, cry out, like, God, things are not right. When will this be made right? And that gets us, church, to part two of our big story. And that's what we're looking at today. Part two is God's big plan to make it right, to restore what was lost. The plan of restoration, of recovery, redemption, reconciliation. Um, Listen, God could have kept us, left us right there in our sin. He could have. He could have left creation in all of its thorns and allergies to figure it out on its own. He could have left us in the bed we made. And he would have been completely just in doing that. Completely just in doing that. To just walk away and to, and, and to let the sin that we choose and cling to just drag us right into the grave. He would have been just in doing that. Period. End of story. In other words, the story could have ended tragically in part one. But as scripture says, but God, rich in mercy. So part two reveals this beautiful plan unfolding, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. I told you that I'm going to zoom out and look at the whole story of the Bible, but I cannot help myself. I do have a text, and I'm anchored in Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to Colossians 1. Um, what What I... I started with this text last week, so we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, Colossians 1, we're going to be in verses 15 through 20. And uh, let me read it for us, and then I'll pray and we will get started. Here we go. Verse 15. He, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We come to your word this morning as we always do in, first of all, just gratitude that we get this opportunity, but then second, asking that you would speak. So we come to your word open-handed, and I just pray that you would speak through your word, that we would hear your word today, and that we would live by it. Obey it, follow it, and that we would see Christ in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so last week, we looked at the first two verses. We talked about all things being created by him, through him, and for him. Um, in our verse this morning, verse 17, is going to pick up right where we left off. Um, so let's just walk through this. Go ahead and put verse 17 on, on, up there for me. So he is before all things. Our text says, right off the bat, that's a reference to the fact that Jesus, the Creator of all things, existed before all things that he created. That's just logical, right? Um, that he is before all things, kind of like an artist is before his painting, or uh, um, I don't know, a, a musician is before his song. I talked about Legos last week. The child is before the Lego set that he built, right? Before. It's in the same way Jesus was before all of creation, pre-existing. Our God is eternal, eternally triune, which means Jesus is eternal, pre-existing before all that he created. And and, and here's the, the wonderful and beautiful thing here. Um, the story doesn't end here. In, in this next couple Moments. these next verses, we're going to dig down deeper out of part one creation into part two of our story. And, and this text is going to show us, going to show us who Christ is in part two. And we have some exciting ground to cover. So picking right up, he is before all things. Now I want you to listen to this next statement. And in him, all things hold together. If you remember last week, we talked about the by him, through him, and for him. We have another one, in him. In him. Church, God did not create things and then step back from them and say, that's awesome, work it out, I'll see you when you get here. He didn't step back and, and, and just let things happen. He, he I want to make this personal. He didn't create you brother, you, sister. He didn't create you to just step back and leave you and say, figure it out, I'll see you when you get here. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture tells us that our God is intimately involved with his creation. Um, The call of Christ is not to just acknowledge him as creator, and acknowledge that he's coming again. Church, there's a part two. And in this between, what are we, what are we doing? What are we doing? It, we're not just left to figure it out. Because in between, um, Christ, uh, Scripture says that Christ is holding all things together. So Scripture says part two of this beautiful story, Christ is the sustainer. Christ is the sustainer. Yeah, praise God for that. Uh, There's this way of thinking, and I want to bring it out just so I can say stop it, okay? Um, It's called deism. I don't know if you've heard of deism. You may not know it by its name. It's definitely not new. It's very old. In fact, uh, if you think of Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, like way back in the day, um, those are probably the most popular Americans that we have that hold to this. Uh, But I got to tell you, just because it's old, it's still alive and kicking today. What deism is, is, is this understanding of God being kind of like a master clock maker. And then he builds this beautiful clock, he winds it up, steps back, and lets the clock work the way he designed it to work. That God created all creation with natural processes that now he can step back from and just let it go. That's deism. Um, Scripture does not teach deism. I want to say this stronger. Scripture explicitly refutes and destroys the idea of our God in deism. The deistic idea of God is not the true God that the Bible talks about. So what Scripture talks about is that God created... All things out of nothing for his glory by his word and it was good. And scripture teaches then that God sustains his creation. Holding all things together in creation. Our our God is creator, yes and amen. He's the by him, through him, and for him, right? But our God is also the sustainer, meaning he is the in him of creation as well. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us today, before we even go any further, that Christ holds all things together? What does that mean? Um, First, it means that Christ is imminent. Okay. Uh, Not to be confused with imminent or imminent, but Christ is imminent. Um, English is awful. If this English is not your first language, it's awful. Eminent with an E means to stand out, okay? Uh, to, to be, you know, uh, the son of an eminent military officer or something like that, to stand out, right, rank. In fact, we see eminent with an E later in our text, pre Pre-eminent. There's the eminent with an E, meaning superior, above all, eminent, um, highest degree. So Christ is absolutely eminent with an E. Absolutely imminent with an E. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm also not talking about imminent starting with an I and having an I in the middle. That is something else. That means that something is about to happen. It's close to happening. Uh, Crazy enough, in Scripture, Christ's return is imminent with an I and then an I in the middle. Okay? So he's that too. Christ is imminent with an E. Christ is imminent with a double I. In uh, that his return is coming soon. But praise God, Christ is also that imminent with an I and then an A. Again, English is the worst. Um, I and then an A, which means that Christ is present with his creation. It's a closeness to his creation, especially his, his people, but in a personal and intimate way, Christ is imminent. So, God created, and it was good, Genesis 1 and 2. Sin and death enters the world in the fall, Genesis 3. And then after that, God came down, stepped in, revealed himself in his creation, gives us his presence, his law, his word. He, church, is imminent with an I and an A. Imminent. There's no better example of that than Jesus the, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, imminent, right. present, not removed, not distant. The fact that Christ is the sustainer, holding all things together, means that Christ is imminent. We'll talk more about that here in a bit. But on top of that, it also means that we as creation are dependent, right. dependent. Um, You don't need to turn with me here, but in Job 12, 10 says, in his hand, that's God's hand, is life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. How about that? New Testament, Acts uh, 17. In him we live and move and have our being. Oh, We are dependent creatures on our creator. And I want to be very clear when I say this. I'm not just talking about you Christians. Like, I'm not just talking about the ones who say, we trust you, Jesus, we need you, Jesus, and worship. No, no, I'm talking about creation, whether we admit it or not, is in need of our creator, dependent on. His being the creator and sustainer is not dependent on you acknowledging it. Don't give yourself that much power. (laughs) Um, In that way, he's the creator and sustainer of atheists as well. All creation. Our God is less like a master clockmaker who winds it and backs up. And he's more like a master gardener. Plants the garden and lovingly tends it. These analogies fall painfully short, but I think you see what I mean. The best gardener is not going to plant it and then peace out. No, that's a dead garden. I've done that before. All (laughs) right? In cultivating. Christ is our sustainer. Um, he, you need him. He is present with you. So, so my prayer in this, um, just before we even move on, my prayer in this is not that we would need Jesus and that, that um, Jesus would be present with us. No, my prayer as I've looked at this is more that we would realize and recognize our need for Christ and that we would be more aware of his presence as his children as he works in and through creation in his word he's our sustainer he's the by him through him for him and the in him let's let's put our verse back on the screen here so he is before all things and in him all things hold together then falling right into that it says and he is the head of the body the church we'll pause there so as we look at part 2 of our story the middle Christ is the sustainer, number one. Second, Christ is the head. Um, The head of his body, the church. This imagery is really rich, and it's not the first time that this is used in Scripture. Uh, In fact, the people of God are called the body of Christ in multiple places, and you're called a member of the body of Christ in multiple places, and we work together together. And, and um, Christ with that is the head. And what does that mean, that Christ is the head of the body? I want to bring out two things here. It means more than this, but just two things. First, it means authority. Authority. Headship, Christ being the head, has to do with authority. Christ is the head of the church, meaning that Christ is the authority of the church, his people. This means that pastors, leaders, denominational leaders, I don't care who you are, elders, it doesn't matter. Whoever leader you are in the church, the church does not belong to any man. It doesn't. The church, it's not my church. It's it's his church. We are under shepherds under him. He is the authority and head of his church. This means that this right here has to be first and foremost in our church. Amen. Why is that? Because it's the word of God. It's the word of God. If he is ultimate, that means the ultimate authority we have is his word. So we stand under it. We stand by it. We, it means that we stand on the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ, the work of Christ, the hope of Christ, the power of Christ. There's no other because he is our head. Now, Scripture is very clear. In fact, we took a break from teaching 1 Timothy, where we're, we're finding all about how God has a plan for the way the church is led. So Scripture talks about Christ has given the church elders and deacons and leaders to lead the church. That's good. That's godly, yes. But yet in all of that, the authority, ultimate authority in the church is Christ. That means all other authority submits to him, is under him the ultimate Christ. That's why this is so important. Christ is Lord. Um, Think about it like this. When I say Christ is Lord of the church, there was something that hit me uh, this week. There's that text that says one day Christ is going to return and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Christ is Lord, right? I love that. I love that. What I started to realize is that until that day, until that day, we as the church, every knee needs to bow in here. Every tongue needs to confess in here that Jesus is the Lord. In other words, one day the rest of creation is going to join us. But God's word is clear that it's ours until then to strive to show them how it's done. Because Christ is the head today of his people, of his church. So we go first. Christ is Lord. He is head. He is authority. He has authority over his church. And along with authority, I want to touch on something again. The other one is that this also reveals our dependence on him. Um, I don't know about you, but my body, my physical body, is very dependent on my physical head. How's that for the understatement of the morning, right? You're dead without your head, okay? You're dead. Uh, you can't function. I can't function. I can't move. I can't think. I can't eat. can't breathe. I, you, you're dead without your your head. You're nothing. We have nothing. We do nothing. Um, You can live without certain parts of your body. Your head is not one of those parts. It's essential. We are dependent on our heads. Church, in the same way, if not exponentially more, we as God's people are dependent on Christ. Without him, let's go home let's do a barbecue we're done this is nothing apart from Christ but because of Christ this is everything he's our authority we are dependent on on him he is our head and so if we we see we see that he is before all things in verse 17 he holds all things together he's the head of his body the church those are two Massive, lofty statements. And then in our text, the next two lines give us the reason for these huge statements. It says this, back in our text. He is the beginning. Okay, uh, again, we're going back to what we already talked about, that Christ it, it made, it was by him, through him, for him. He preexisted. He's the beginning, right? This is John 1. All over again, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And the word was with God, the word was God. He was, with, in, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, all right? In the beginning, right, he is in the beginning. Then our text says, he is the firstborn from the dead. This is a reference to the resurrection of Christ. We're going to be looking uh, at that next week as Christ rose from the dead, not only spiritually, but bodily, conquering death. One day we're going to raise with him, put a pin in that. We're coming back to that one um, next week. But Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And then our text says that in everything, he might be preeminent. So there's the eminent with an E, in everything, in all of creation, not just the church, but in everything, all of creation. This points back to Colossians 1.16 that says in him, by him, through him, all things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, kingdoms. It's everything that in everything he might be supreme or preeminent. In other words, last week in part one, we talked about and we saw in scripture that Jesus is the center and he is the center of the story, the by him, through him, and for him. Well, this week in part two, guess what? We see it again. Jesus is the center, preeminent, supreme over all things. Christ is Lord. So he's Lord of all creation in part one. He is Lord of creation in part two, preeminent. Spoiler alert. He is Lord of creation in part three. Next week this is so important because it, it leads us together, where we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning. Um, so in part two of this beautiful story, we see Jesus is the sustainer and the head, and then we read this, verse 19, "For in him all the fullness of God was pl- pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth making peace by the blood of his." cross there's a lot here but let me just put these down. so Jesus is the sustainer. number two, Jesus is the head and number three, Jesus is the Savior Hallelujah. the Savior. So if you want to know what is part two about Jesus is the Savior through God or uh, through Christ God was reconciling to himself all things Scripture says to reconcile means to bring something back to restore a right relationship, to bring harmony back. It's just incredible verbiage because if you think about in part one how everything was good and then it wasn't, then part, or in Genesis 3, everything is lost. It, and God could have left us there. He could have, but he didn't because in part two, we see God's incredible plan Of reconciliation to bring back what was once lost, to restore harmony and shalom through Christ and Christ alone. Um, This last line it says, "Making peace by the blood of His cross." This points us to one of the central themes in the Old Testament. Um, If you were to read your Old Testament, especially in books like Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you're going to see this. This uh, the Bible talk a lot about the sacrificial system. Um, it's where most of us when you want to do a reading plan in your Bible that's where most of us start to feel the fatigue when we get to the sacrificial system and we start list what we, what we see is depending on the sin you're to do x you're to do you know you're to take a bird or take a goat take a bull and it it very clear what you needed to do because for your sin a sacrifice had to be made we read about this in the Old Testament. We hear that now and it sounds horrible. That's kind of the point. It was. And sin is infinitely more horrible than even that. For the people, they saw it right in front of them. That white lie was a dead bird. There's a grossness. There's a death to it. There's a stink to it. And that was the point. They saw how bloody, how deadly, how gross sin was by this, by this practice. I don't, I, this is a longer passage, but I had to, I had to read it Uh, for you. I'm going to put it on the screen, so you don't necessarily need to turn it here, but um, I wanted to just real briefly, in light of what we're talking about in part two in Colossians, I want to read this text to you. This is Hebrews 9. It says, indeed, under the law, that's that Old Testament law that I was telling you about um, before Christ's work on the cross, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's a showstopper right there, that statement. Thus, it was necessary for copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What's this saying here? What's this saying? It's saying that the Old Testament system is pointing to something else, something infinitely better. Those animals pointed ahead. They were what the Hebrew says, copies of, pointing ahead. And then it says, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly that is Christ as the high priest enters into the holy places every year and they're sacrificing with blood that is not his own um, It says for then he that is Jesus would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundations of the world because we keep sinning But then it says this, but as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sit with that one for a little bit. That's, that's incredible. He goes on to say, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and then after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly waiting for him, pointing to part three that we'll get to next week of this big, incredible story. But can you just take that in, church? What what the word of God tells us here? For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, um, making peace by the blood of his cross. Church, can you just take in what God's word is, is putting out before us today? Jesus Christ saved you by giving his life, his own blood. He was the perfect spotless lamb, the once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And through his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins, all of them all of them, just as sin is, was gross and horrible and bloody back then in the Old Testament days, it's just as deadly today. Only now, church, it's not your blood that is required. It's not the blood of the goat that is required. Now in Christ, it's the blood of our Savior that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We just went to the tables and we remembered that this morning. It's his blood. Your sins are forgiven, the sins of yesterday, today, and the ones you have yet to do, once and for all, forgiven of your sins through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his blood being shed. There is now, therefore, no condemnation if you're here and you're struggling to believe me when I say that, or it doesn't sound crazy and amazing, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Nothing. It's Romans Romans 8. If you don't believe me, go to Romans 8 after this. Read that 17 times. It's incredible. And why is that? It's because our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. Scripture says that if you believe him, trust him in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, that you will be saved. Here's the question. Do you trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you want to know the resounding question of part two which by the way, you're living in it right now. You're living in part two. If you want to know the single most important question for you to answer in your life and in all of part two is do you trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? That's it. If you hear nothing else, please read this question and ask it and answer it honestly. It's the single most important question. We're going to come back to this. And I want to make sure that we understand one more thing. One more thing this morning as we think about part two. We're saved from sin in Christ. And I want to ask you very just candidly, what does that mean? Um, And I want to give you three things. It means three things. When I say you are saved from your sin, I'm talking about three things. Number one. Through the cross, through his blood, Christ saved you from the penalty of your sin. It's done. Christ said, it is finished, and he meant it. There's no more penalty of sin in Christ. It's done. You've been saved by that. There is therefore now no condemnation. You are saved from the penalty of sin in Jesus Christ. It's done. Number one. Also, when I say that you are saved from sin, I am also talking about the fact that Christ is saving you from the power of sin. So you have been saved from the the penalty and you are being saved from the power, meaning through Christ we are putting sin to death. We're growing in him. Sin is losing its power in our life as we walk with Jesus. Jesus. Sanctification. And yet, one more, we also cling to the hope knowing that through Christ we will be saved from the very presence of sin. The very presence of sin when sin itself is no more. Gone. This is huge. This is huge. And in, 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 I think um, I read this this week. And it just struck me, and I wanted to share this with you as we, as we land this morning and push pause for, for next week. Um, I related to the man in Mark 8. And uh, in Mark 8, we have one of the oddest miracles I think Jesus ever performs. It's so weird. I can't explain it. It's, it's so odd. Um, they In verse 22... They, they're in Bethsaida, and some people bring him a blind man, and they beg for Jesus to heal him. That's normal. See that every day in Jesus' life, right? Uh, but then in verse 23, he took the blind man, led him out of the village, spat on his eyes, laid hands on him, and asked, do you see anything? Boom, it's done, right? Jesus just healed a man. He does that. Only not exactly. In this story, the man looks up and he says, yes, I see people, but they look like trees walking. How weird is that? Like, he was healed, he he could see, but not perfectly, kind of dimly. People look like trees walking. So I was blind, but now I see dimly. Then in verse 25, Jesus lays his hands on him again. And then he opens his eyes, and his sight was restored. And this time he saw everything clearly. Weirdest miracle. I dare you to find another one weirder. This is weird. Why didn't Jesus just, why did he choose to do that? Why did he have Zion, right? Like, why Why didn't he just choose to heal his blind eyes perfectly? Instead, he chooses to heal his eyes dimly, only to then heal him perfectly. It's the craziest miracle. Um, Here's the thing, though. As I was reading it, I couldn't help but think about myself as this man. I want you to follow with me here. See, we were blind, but God, rich in mercy, touches our eyes, and now we can see. By grace, we've been saved through faith alone. Praise the Lord saved right um however all of us still feel that reality of first corinthians that says for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face there's something that's still there we feel it and so i related this blind man i am like that blind man i have been healed and now i see and yet in so many ways i still see dimly And yet I know that in Christ one day I'm going to see everything clearly on that day. I'm going to be raised with him and sin's going to be no more. Here's the thing. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus halfway saved you. Jesus didn't halfway save me. I've been saved by grace through faith, period. But what I am saying is that right now I live and you live in an already but not yet. And what that means is that through the cross, through his blood, We've been saved by the, from the penalty of sin. That's your justification, and it, church, is done. It's done. Over. Right? And yet, in this moment today, Christ is currently saving you, brother and sister, from the power of sin in your life. That's still, that's still an ongoing battle. You are being sanctified in his grace. That, you're a work in progress until that day. And still we cling to the hope knowing that in Christ, we will be one day saved from the very presence of all of it. No more sin. One day we will see sin, no more glorification. That's our story. That's our story. Part two of our big story. This is where we find ourselves today. Christ is the by him, for him, through him, and in him of all of this. Christ is our sustainer. He is our head. He is our savior. That is who he is That is what he has done, and ours, church, is to respond. That's it. That's your job. That's my job, is to respond to what he has done. Um, Last week, I finished with the first verse, I just read it to you, of how great thou art. And I thought it would be only fitting to end week two uh, with reading to you the words of verse two. Listen as I read this. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul. My Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art.